Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Interesting subject matter. So if anybody is squeamish about, uh, obviously I'm not going to go into any inappropriate details or anything like that, but the, the subject matter is on marriage and singleness and sex, okay? So if there's anybody that, that uh, can't handle that, then uh, go hang out with the children, okay? Uh, that, that, didn't, that didn't come out the way I meant it, okay? All right, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today, and verses 1 through 7, and if you would please stand as we read the Word of God. First Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. This is the word of God. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say as an allowance, not as a command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one this way, and another that. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would just open our eyes to the truth of your word as it pertains to this topic, Lord, and how how perverted and how terribly this world has twisted such a wonderful gift that you have given us. And so, Father, I pray that today we would look only to Scripture and that we would hold only to Scripture in this subject matter, and that, Lord, if there be a need for changes in our lives, that we would do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, the wisest man who ever lived before Christ was uh, Solomon, King Solomon. In Ecclesiastes, he said, there is nothing new under the sun. And he wasn't speaking of new inventions or medical breakthroughs. This wise king was speaking of human nature, our fallen condition, and how our depravity is a cycle that sometimes we get our act together but just give us enough time, and we're going to fall apart again, right? Romans 1, if you give mankind enough time, a society enough time corporately, they will go down their own way of destruction. And these people in Corinth were about as pagan and ungodly as you can get. And by, by pagan, I mean far, far from God and the ways of God. Uh, they were engaging in mysticism and sorcery in every kind of sexual sin imaginable, and I mean every kind. Idolatry, swindling, and on and on the list goes. And this is the kind of thing that the believers in Corinth were saved out of, that lifestyle, okay? And this is why Paul was making his case uh, last week as we studied that the true follower of Christ will truly be separated from their old sinful nature, that you cannot remain the same and remain in all that, that sinful mess. As you can imagine, then, the Corinthian Christians were trying to figure it all out. Okay, well then, what's 
appropriate and, and what's not. How did their newfound faith affect the very practical matters of life, as well as the cultural norms, right? Just the everyday cultural norms that they were accustomed to, but they needed to leave behind because they are now a new creation. Because, you see, these new believers, they wanted to honor God with their life and their conduct, in their words and in their deeds. And they, because they wanted to know, they wrote a letter to Paul. And they sent Paul a letter. It's mentioned in verse 1. You see it there in verse 1. And they asked Paul questions that they needed answers to. It was sort of a, a Q&A session by letter with the Apostle Paul. Uh, this letter was likely sent by Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And Paul's answers to their questions start here in chapter 7. And this Q&A session goes all the way through chapter 11. So over the coming weeks, we're going to deal with some pretty controversial issues. Okay, But throughout these passages, Paul answers these questions. And he often refers back to Jesus' words. He doesn't actually quote him like he's saying, hey guys, I'm, this is what Jesus said. But he quotes him, and just through cross-referencing, you know he's quoting him. And he, and he refers to what Jesus says as commands. But Paul also gives, in this text, new, inspired information. More detailed information than even what Jesus had given in the Gospels. And so, yes, we apply everything that Jesus said to us, Okay, but also the spirit in this text is inspiring Paul to answer these questions for the conduct of the body of Christ with new, more detailed revelation that the body of Christ must apply to their lives today as well. Y'all understand? Say amen. amen. All right. So the very first question they asked Paul about was marriage and singleness. There's a really good reason why they asked him about this. Because for their culture, that Roman culture, and especially in Corinth, it was extremely messed up. It was a mixture of paganism, as I mentioned before, and all these different cultural traditions that had no connection with God at all. And so for these new believers who desired to honor God, as I said, in every way, they wanted to know clearly, how are we supposed to live for Christ? How are we supposed to live for Christ? So, a little background here. Here's what the Corinthian society tolerated. They tolerated homosexuality, fornication, adultery, polygamy, which is uh, having multiple wives, concubinage, which is having a wife to do all the chores and other wives to do, uh, you know, for pleasure, that sort of thing, okay? And they also had a very robust feminist movement. Uh, there was a Roman poet named Juvenal, and he wrote about women, and, and quote, quoting him, Women rejected their own sex, they wore helmets, they delighted in feats of strength, and with exposed breasts they hunted wild pigs with spears. Alright, not the kind of woman I want to hang out with. We have historical record that some wives competed with their husbands in business, and they would even challenge their husbands in feats of strength. And many were not interested in being homemakers or mothers. And by the end of the first century, childless marriages were very common. Both men and women were determined to live their own lives regardless of their marriage vows. Okay, so that was the society 
Juvenal also said that many of these folks wore out their bridal veils with so many marriages. Uh, obviously, um, that just goes to show you that marriage was almost disposable. There are some historical records that tell us that some of these folks were married upwards of 25 times. So how could that be, you might ask? Well, under Roman law and customs of their day, there were four types of marriage that that culture engaged in. And you'll have to forgive me as I try to pronounce um, these Greek words here. But the first one is contubernium, and it means tent companionship. And because they considered slaves to be subhuman, if a man and woman slave wanted to get married, they might be allowed to marry and live together in a tent, but it only lasted as long as the owner gave them permission uh, to stay together, and he could separate them or sell them at any time he wanted. So you have people who are married and then forced apart by their, their owners. Uh, and folks, many of the Corinthian believers were slaves. Many of the, the church members were slaves, and they lived the reality of that kind of marriage. Okay? The next one is usus, which is the equivalent of what we would call today as a common law marriage. So they've been together for a year, and they're just automatically by law considered to be common law married. The next is, this is the one that's, that's hard to pronounce for me, uh, coemptio in manum. I think I got it. Coemptio in manum, in which the father would sell his daughter to a suitor for an agreed-upon bridal price. So this was more of an arranged marriage. And, uh, and actually, many cultures today still do this. Um, they, they find a, a suitor, a suitable suitor, and then they negotiate a bride price. And then, of course, the, the bride is married to that person. Um, and then the fourth was called conferatio. And this was the uppity-ups uh, in marriage, the, the upper echelon of society. The nobility practiced this type of wedding, which was a mixture of various traditions and, again, mostly pagan. However, the Roman Catholic Church adopted this form of marriage ceremony, and it became the norm within the church, and it remained the norm even after the Reformation amongst Protestants. And as I describe it, let's see if you guys can recognize anything about it. There was participation by both families in arranging the ceremony. A chosen matron or maid would accompany the bride, while a chosen man or uh, you know best man would accompany the groom. The two would exchange vows. The bride would wear a veil and hold a bouquet of flowers. The two would exchange rings on the third finger of the left hand. And what do we call that, that finger today? The ring finger. Now, what's interesting in my study, I found out that um, the, the Romans were very good at dissecting cadavers and to find out how the human anatomy works. And what they found was there is a nerve from this finger, none of the others, there's a nerve from this finger that goes straight up to the heart. And so that's why they chose to put the ring on that finger. Huh? To top it all off, they would celebrate with a wedding cake. All right, you've got to have the cake, right? So in the Roman Empire of Paul's day, divorce was common. And multiple marriages and divorces was a common issue within the local church, even in that day. 
The local church dealt with couples that had lived together, couples that were still living together, and all under all four of these different various types of marriage arrangements. So the practice of having multiple wives and concubines was common as well. And when a man made Christ his Lord, and he had several concubines or three wives, then what? Now what are we supposed to do? And in addition, some of the believers in the Corinthian church adopted the thinking that to be single was more spiritual than to be married, okay? And they began to denigrate marriage, and some taught that sex was impure and unspiritual, and that it should be tossed aside, okay? So the whole situation concerning marriage in this time in which Paul wrote this letter was just a real mess. And so they wrote all this letter seeking clarification. And this message today is directed primarily to singles as they look ahead, right, to their future spouses and their future relationships, but it equally has much application, just as much application for those of us who are already married. Now, I know that everyone in here comes from very uh, varying backgrounds and situations, and I know for some, as hard as you tried, you had a relationship fail. And this message is not meant to, to beat anybody up, but rather to give you hope. That no matter what has happened in your past, in, in your relationships, you can move ahead in a way that honors God. And that is any situation. That's any type of failure. You can give that to God and you can move on and live your life in such a way that it is honoring God. And that's the issue that the Corinthians were concerned about. How do we honor God? That's what we want to do. So given the messy situation we're in now, what are we supposed to do to honor God? What is our new way of spirit-filled life supposed to look like? So in answering these questions, Paul starts out on the question of singleness. And let's start with verses 6 and 7, because I want to make something clear first. So we're going to go backwards in a way, uh, just because I think he kind of uh, puts the, the exclamation point at the end here. But verse 6, he says, because this I say as an allowance, not as a command. So here's what he's saying by that. He's saying whether you are married or single, both are allowed and neither are a command. Does everybody understand that? Both marriage and singleness are allowed within the body of Christ and neither are a command. And then he says, verse 7, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, which Paul was single, however, each man has his own gift from God, one this way, and another that. So Paul says, I see great benefit in being single in your ability to serve the Lord. And when you have wife and kids, right, you must make your wife and children your priority. But a single person can make service to Christ a priority. And uh, But Paul begins with a warning uh, to the Corinthians that singleness, that being single, has its pitfalls. Okay? And that's what he's trying to say. Again, the whole foundation of this text is whether you are married or single, both are allowed and neither is a command. So let me make a clarifying statement to begin with just because I feel it needs to be said. Sex is not a dirty word. Paul speaks of it openly as does others in Scripture. It is a gift from God. It is of God's design. We should not 
be afraid to talk about sex. We should not be afraid to talk to our kids about sex. It should be something that we speak openly about in appropriate ways so that they understand how it's all supposed to work as they uh, get older and they start thinking about marriage and how all of this is supposed to work afterward, okay? The worst thing in the world to do is tell them that if you have sex before you're married, the devil's going to kill you, all right? We're not, we're not about that sort of uh, fear tactic, you know? We want, we want to let them know. Scripture tells you it's very difficult to live as a single person, and you need to be spiritually prepared for it and if you are, and you will wait, there are great rewards that come in the context of marriage, okay? So hopefully today's message won't cause you guys all to shift in your seat too much, but I think we should all be good. 1 Corinthians 7.1. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, so here, about your questions that you sent the letter, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. All right, so this is important to understand what this means. Um, maybe some of you are thinking, oh no, I, I hugged the pastor's wife this morning. Does that mean I'm going to be excommunicated? Yes. <laughs> so, no, I'm just kidding. That is not what that means. Um, Paul is using this phrase to touch a woman, and it is an appropriate euphemism for the act of sex. And in our culture, we often hear phrases like, making love or sleeping together, right? And this euphemism, to touch a woman, is, is used in various places throughout Scripture. Just to show you a couple, in Genesis 20, verse 6, Genesis 20, verse 6, it says, Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Okay? So, it's speaking of that sexual act. Proverbs 6, 29. So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. He's not talking about sneaking into your neighbor's uh, house and, and touching his wife on the shoulder. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about adultery. Okay? So, this makes it clear what Paul is discussing. And also within the context of singleness. It is good for a single... An unmarried man or woman, not to have sex, uh, married or unmarried, in any context. Okay? You understand? Another woman. Adultery, let me clarify. Adultery, I saw I saw my daughter like give me this weird look like, what did you just say? We're talking about either adultery or before you're married. Do you understand? It is good for a let's just put it in the context of a man and ladies, you can you can understand it as well. It is good for a single unmarried man. Not to have sex with a woman who is uh, married or unmarried in any context, meaning it should always be in the context of your own marriage. Okay? It is good, honoring, pleasing to God that the single person is dedicated to honoring Christ with their bodies until they are unmarried. However, Paul doesn't intend to say that being single is the only good way to serve God or to honor God. He's not saying that Christian men can't be married in this passage, okay? God himself said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. He created people with the need for companionship. And if you want to see God's design for marriage and family, just go back to original creation. One man with one woman having, having children. And God said, this is good. 
Okay? However, because there were some in that culture, in the church of Corinth, that were saying to singles, it's it's sinful to be married, right? That you're... you're um, I'm sorry, they were saying, okay, so again, there were a bunch of uh, Jewish background people in the church who were saying it is sinful not to be married. And so they were uh, like downgrading the, the Christians who were not married, right? Kind of putting pressure on them to get married. And then there were those who were saying, hey, if you get married, you're less spiritual. It's more spiritual to be single. Y'all understand? So all this stuff was going on. And, and they were saying that if you weren't married, that you are going against God because it's against God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And this isn't the case either. The point is, either way, whether you're single or married, you should be honoring God. One is not more spiritual than the other. And Paul was stating there is a way to be good, honoring, and pleasing to God no matter your circumstance in this whole Corinthian marital mess. Okay? There's a way to honor Him. Verse 8. But because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. So it says because of immoralities. It's just stating the reality for a single unmarried person that it's very difficult to remain celibate, that the temptations are great. And the older you get, the, the greater those temptations get. Okay, He's warning them of that danger, that, un, that danger of un fulfilled desire for sex before you're married, and especially in cultures like that of Corinth, and honestly, that of our own. Um, you know, sex is thrown in singles' faces, all of our faces, 24-7. Many of their friends are already engaging in uh, premarital sex, and they have no idea. Now listen, this is serious. This is really serious for young people. For parents to teach your, your young people. They have no idea of the consequences that come along with that sexual activity before marriage. As it is a sin, not only against God, but the Bible says it's a sin against yourself. Now, this isn't listed in there, but 1 Corinthians 6.18, we've already been over this, but 1 Corinthians 6.18, it says, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It, it does something to you that no other sin will do. It damages your soul. And it can send you into a spiral of engaging in worldly pleasures. And then come the lies to cover up the sin and the guilt and the shame, and your heart then can be set loose to pursue wicked desires until one day you realize you are so far away from who you dreamed you were going to be when you were an innocent kid. So much damage has been done. There's a quote that my youth pastor, uh, he said this when I was 18, and it stuck with me. And, and maybe you should write this down because I think it's always good to keep in mind. Sin takes you further than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. Sin takes you further than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want it to stay. And it costs you more than you want it to pay. So 
Don't take one more step. Flee sexual immorality and run to the truth of God's word. His way is always the best way. Now, it's important to understand that marriage should not be looked at only as a safety valve for uh, sexual desire. Paul isn't suggesting that singles should go out and marry the first Christian that they uh, come across and get married, right? An unwise, hasty decision in who you marry can cause years and years of heartache. What Paul is saying is, don't commit to a life of singleness for Christ unless you fully understand the temptations and the dangers of this decision. But don't just go out there and marry the first person that you, that you meet. Also, the statement informs the believers that in spite of all the ungodly sexual activity that is taking place around them, there is this incredible, indescribable gift from God that allows for appropriate and good and godly sexual behavior. It says, let each man have his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. One man loving one woman for his very own for a lifetime. One woman loving one man for her very own for a lifetime. There is no other. They are true companions. They are best friends for life. Serving one another and hopefully serving God. A biblical marriage is the only legitimate and right way of engaging in a sexual relationship. I'm going to repeat that one more time. Sex or biblical marriage is the only legitimate and right way of engaging in a sexual relationship. So, so sex within a godly marriage is like icing on a tiered wedding cake, okay? It's first of all, it's it's sweet, it's awesome. It acts like a type of glue that holds the cake together, okay? All that, that icing they smear in between, they smash those two pieces of cake together, it holds them together, and then it encompasses the entire cake. And it is an essential joy and delight in a godly marriage. Expressed within the confines of God's design, sex in marriage is even an act of worship to God. Have you ever thought about that? That, that sex within marriage, because it's God's design, it's actually an act of worship to the Creator. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but I think that's awesome. With that being said, Christ followers who love God and love their spouse should have the most robust sex lives of anyone out there. Bar none. Don't let the world make it dirty. Don't let society pervert this incredible gift that God has given you. Do it God's way. Honor Him and honor your future spouse. Wait until you're married. To have sex. Then you get to enjoy all the purity and blessing that comes along with a supernatural bond that exists between one husband, one wife, and God. God's Word gives us various reasons for marriage, and these reasons should be considered, considered when you're praying for a mate, young people. You should have a list of standards. Doesn't mean that they're going to meet all your standards, but there are some standards that they must meet before you get married. And you need to be very picky, all right, and wait for the right man or woman to marry. First, marriage is for protection. No matter what is happening in the world around us, we can create an environment of peace 
and protection in our own homes. When we grow in Christ together and we train our children to think biblically, we cannot always guarantee that they will be okay because honestly, sometimes our kids make mistakes. If they do, love them, point them to Scripture, and help them get back up on their feet, help them get back on the right track. And, and folks, sometimes tragedy strikes as well. And all we can do is do all we can do to be certain that they are ready to spend eternity with the Lord, that we're pointing them to Scripture, that we're raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you choose a spouse that is uh, an unbeliever, or if you choose a spouse that does not have the same spiritual convictions as you do, or they don't believe that the Bible is not God's inerrant word and that it is the, the roadmap for Christian living, then you're going to be at odds even from the beginning. That doesn't mean God can't work a miracle and change the situation. It's just best not to start out that way. It's best to wait and find the person who understands the authority of God's word, who understands the man's role within marriage, the woman's role within God's de design for marriage, and that that person is someone that you're going to, to uh, make ties with for the rest of your life. So building a biblical marriage at home provides impenetrable, eternal protection for us. And it gives us a peace that passes all understanding. So we'll worry about our kids no matter what. We're going we're gonna to be concerned about them, right? And, and parents with young kids, just wait till they get older. I know, you, I know you're concerned about them now. Just wait till they start growing facial hair and, and, uh, and, and get old enough to start meeting you know, boys. Then, then you really got to start praying harder and more, all right? You were the facial hair, they were the voice. <laughs> Marriage is for procreation. Marriage is for procreation. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful. Be fruitful. If you can, have those babies. Have a lot of them. And if you can, adopt, all right? The best way to grow the body of Christ and evangelize exists under your own roof. Make every effort to raise children, to love and serve the Lord. Parents, I can't tell you now being on this side of having children, never take your foot off the gas. Live what you say you believe. Raise up kids that think and act biblically. Marriage is for pleasure. Marriage is for pleasure. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 says, Let your fountain be blessed and be glad in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated always with her love. That doesn't say uh, after 15 years you're not going to be intoxicated with the love anymore. It means be intoxicated always with her love. And this insinuates finding a spouse early on and spending your life with them. The Song of Solomon is full of references to pleasure, physical attraction, and fulfillment within marital love. And so again, it is not a dirty thing. It's a gift from God. Uh, uh, next, marriage is a partnership. It's a partnership. Genesis 2.18 says that God created a woman to be a helper suitable for him. You are best friends. You work together. You are, uh, you are making decisions together. You are growing together in the Lord. And knowing that we're partnering together to raise our children and to live this life together until the very end, it's so comforting, and it's such a joy. Marriage is a picture. Marriage, it, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, His bride. 
Husbands have authority over and love and sacrifice for their wives. In the same way, Christ has authority over, loves, and sacrifices for his church. Next, marriage is for purity. As we've already read, it righteously satisfies our sexual needs physically, and it protects us from immorality, from falling into sin and, and the way of the world around us. So Paul is making clear singleness is good. Honor God in that. But understand, it has dangers that a godly marriage does not have. Now, in the next few verses, he's still discussing celibacy or abstaining from sex, but he's talking about it within the context of marriage. Some in Corinth were teaching, again, that there was, there was spiritual supremacy in sexual abstinence. So they're like, you want to be super spiritual? You want to be really close to God? Then don't have sex, even if you're married. All right? And, and that is what Paul is addressing here in these next couple verses. Verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There is a mutual authority in the context of sex within marriage. The husband has a duty to his wife, and the wife has authority over him in that regard. If she needs you, you honor her and God by submitting to that authority, and you fulfill your wife's needs. Likewise, the wife has a duty to her husband, and the husband has authority over her. If he needs you, you honor him and God by submitting to that authority to fulfill your husband's needs. And there is never an excuse to deprive your spouse of their sexual needs. Now, this is a loving interaction. So there are obviously times in a marriage where there are circumstances in which you should have compassion on your partner if there's a reason why they can't uh, you know, engage in, in sexual activity. But there should never be a reason ongoing for you to deprive your, your spouse. Again, a Christ-centered marriage should have the most robust, God-honoring, spouse-honoring, exhilarating sex life of anyone out there. And it is always between a husband and a wife, and a wife and her husband. If you bring a third person into the marriage bed, whether you make the decision together or not, in whatever form, even watching pornography together, anything like that would be falling short of God's design for marriage, and therefore it is a sin, and I would just say it's very dangerous. If you do not have an active sex life in your marriage, there is something wrong, okay? Um, when, when I was pastoring in Texas, there was a man, we went to a conference together, and we were driving on our way home, and he said, I was going to ask you about something. And I said, okay, uh, shoot, go ahead. And he said, well, my wife and I, uh, I was driving, by the way, and uh, he said, my wife and I, we haven't had sex in two years. And I, I like, was like, what? Two years? I almost flew off the road. Because I was so surprised. And, uh, and yeah, I said, bro, I mean, yeah, there, something's wrong. Big time. Big time. Okay? And, uh, and so you just need to know there are reasons why uh, you are, that there should not be, um, there's periods of time in, in a marriage in which sex is not going to take place. But you should not deprive one another for long periods of time. And Paul's talking 
about this here. Never, look, never deprive your spouse because you're angry and you're going to punish them, okay? It is your duty, both of you, it's your duty to honor one another and honor God to solve the problem and, and get back into God's design for marriage. All right, moving into verse 5. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So there may arise issues in the marriage in which it would be necessary to mutually fast from having sex as, as a married couple. And Paul is saying that is okay, but don't allow it to go too long. Why? Look what he says in the rest of the verse. But come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The reality is that every single person has a lack of self-control. Now, some people's fuses of self-control are much longer than others, right? But all of us have this self-control, if we find our lack of self-control, if we find ourselves in the wrong situation. So, look, in a marriage you should set protective parameters to prevent failure, all right? Prevent failure. The, the best way to prevent failure is to never be in the wrong situation in the first place. And so if you set up those proper parameters in your marriage, like the kinds of things that they made fun of uh, Mike Pence for when he was running, and they, you know, he said, look, we don't, we don't, I don't ride together alone with a woman in a car. I don't go to lunch with a woman who's not my wife. And they just had a heyday making fun of that. Look, those, that's wisdom. That's, those are parameters that they set up to honor one another and protect their marriage. And I would suggest that you and your husband or wife do the same. Um, listen, so there's never a good excuse for infidelity, but selfishness and neglect from partners can lead to the perfect storm, and it, does, it doesn't just happen, all right? There are poor decisions being made, there's a lack of parameters that are set up that, that uh, allow for failure, compromises that open the door to disaster. There's usually plenty of blame to go around when things fall apart in a marriage, so if you've lived for, uh, through a painful experience, first of all, my heart breaks for you. And God's word says that we must forgive and will be forgiven. We give it to the Lord. We honor God from here on out. Uh, whether it was you who failed or whether it was someone who failed you, there is hope and there is healing moving forward. Now, obviously, the, the needs of men and women are very different. Women usually need their husband to be present, to listen to pay attention. They need security. They need to know that their husband is 100% devoted to them. And look, if that attention wanes or that attention is not there, eventually if enough time passes, given the circumstances, a man who does pay attention to the wife will turn the wife's eye. And women do not usually fall because of unbridled sexual desire. They fall because a man made them feel wanted when their husband had deprived them of that sort of attention. And this led to infidelity in the marriage. As far as husbands go, uh, they just need their wives to be there, just exist. That's pretty much that's pretty much our uh, our list of uh, of necessities, right? And that's about as complex as it gets for them. But but wives, you can honor God and, and honor your husband by providing for your husband to such a degree that all he thinks about is you. <laughs> Provide for your husband to such a degree that all he thinks about is you. And husbands, I would say the same thing to you. The world will tell you that men are toxic 
that they are animals with no self-control. And there are certainly many uh, unregenerate men out there who fit that description. But a man who knows Christ and wants to honor Jesus in every way will find great joy and fulfillment in his own wife and in honoring her. He will do all that he can do to live up to the biblical standards of being a godly man and husband. So wives, if you will take that duty seriously and fulfill the sexual desires of your husband, when he needs you, you be there for him and, and it is very likely that he will never turn his eyes away from you. When you read the Song of Solomon, it doesn't describe a boring sex life. It describes sex within marriage as a treasure, sweet, adventurous, exhilarating, flooded with deep emotion, like even poetry, like your, your teeth are like a flock of doves. You guys can use that on your wife sometime, right? Great. Your, your, your navel is like a goblet. That's a good one. Your cheeks are like a pomegranate. Some, some serious poetry there, but to them, that was very romantic, okay? Um, but it's describing, the Song of Solomon is, is describing a frequency and consistency of years in which you discover one another more and more and more deeply leading to a lasting, lifelong bond. And again, this bond, if you will take care in your marriage, it will keep your eyes on one another. I cannot think of a better scenario for myself or any marriage than the years passing and you find yourself at the end of your life staring into the eyes of your one and only love. And even at the end, even in that sad moment, it will be beautiful because it's been so rewarding and so worth it having a partner for life. You only have this lifetime to love one another in the context of the gift that God has given in marriage. So make it count, make it wonderful, and make it a lifetime. Singles, please do not settle for a Cracker Jack prize before marriage, bringing with it the consequences of guilt and shame and all that comes with that. Or, or even worse, a conscience so seared that there is no guilt and shame anymore. And, and look, you give away pieces of your soul that you can never give back. That's what needs to be understood. Your heart and your body belongs first to Jesus and then to your future mate. You don't want to carry baggage into your marriage. God has given all of us a way forward, whatever our circumstance, whether we have remained pure or whether we have failed. To today, today, no matter what, there is forgiveness and there is healing. No matter what you've been through, no matter what mistakes you've made, you can be made whole. And that's important, so important to understand. You can move on in your life in a way that truly honors God. Amen? Would you bow with me? Today, as we, as we close, I just want to ask you a few questions. First of all, if you need prayer and you're struggling, please do not hesitate to ask me or Colton or someone here that you trust. And I would say also that maybe some of this is foreign to you. 
you've never heard anything like this before about what it means to really be a Christ follower. And I would just like to say, for those of you guys who are believers, you can pray right now for anybody who is unbelieving that may be watching online, someone who may be here this morning. But the truth of the matter is that your sin has separated you from God. Your sin has separated from you from God, and there's nothing you can do to fix it on your own. One sin was enough to separate you from Him eternally. And only by believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the wrath that He took, God's wrath that He took, wrath that was, that was actually scheduled for you, it was the wrath that you deserved when Christ took it upon Himself on the cross and He bought your sin debt so that you could be declared free and righteous. You have to count the cost following Him. You have to submit everything to Him. That's what it means to make Jesus your Lord. You can be right with Him and you can live with Him for eternity, but you have to call out His name. You have to put your faith in Him. And you have to understand that there's no way around it that you are lost, and there's no way to fix it without Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes into the Father except by Him. If this morning you are not certain that you know Christ, if you are not certain that, that you will spend an eternity with God, if you don't understand the things that have been, have been said this morning, I invite you to talk to someone close to you that you trust. And if there's no one, then come to me. And I will walk you through Scripture, and I will show you what it means to be a Christ follower, a true Christ follower. And you can have assurance as you move ahead, that as you walk in faith with Christ, you will spend eternity with Him, and these folks around you that, that love you who are part of the local church body.